It is Cloud Unfiltered. I am your hostess, Nikki Acosta, and we have an awesome guest with us today. Ran, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Ran Moimoto, and I am the president of Convergent Computing based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm so excited. I was, uh, you know, scouting your LinkedIn, of course, like a good host would do. And you've had quite a wild history as far as tech goes and your education. We're talking a little bit about that pre-show. But for our viewers and our listeners today, take us back of how you got into tech and, and tell us about uh, what you're doing at Convergent Computing now. So, uh, yeah, getting involved in tech. So I started out um, when I was 11 years old. Um, I was just helping out at a, a local uh, facility, just kind of cleaning up, um, sweeping the floors, picking up computer paper. And uh, for that, they allowed me to play the computer games. And I was, so I was sitting there playing uh, on the computer games. And at one point, the computer died. And uh, then all of a sudden, all these IBM guys with these ties were sitting around looking at this computer. And I went up, I said, hey, the computer's down. I can't continue to play games. And they're like, well, the mainframe is down, and we need it fixed. And they said, but we can't fix it because you know it's it's vacuum tube at the time. And they opened it up, and they, they can't get into it. But then one of the guys said, well, if we hold Rand upside down by his feet and dunk him into the mainframe, he can swap out the vacuum tube. <laughs> and so they gave, I got an oven mitt and I swapped out the, the vacuum tube and at 11 years old, I got a job working for IBM doing mainframe repairs. So <laughs> I have seen the inside of a mainframe upside down and uh, that's uh, how I got started. Is that even legal? <laughs> These days I'm sure it isn't, but you know, we're talking at a time when, you know, hey, the mainframe's down, they couldn't make payroll. They were like, Let's give it a try. So Let's hey, I, I won't complain. I think that takes the cake for the best. How'd you got it? How you got into tech story uh, ever on the podcast? <laughs> I've got tears in my eyes. So uh, after that, well, where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? Yeah, well, so then I, I worked uh, in the mainframe business for for a while. Obviously, after school, I was still I don't know what, fifth grade, sixth grade when you're 11 years old. Um, but I learned technology obsolescence very quickly. The vacuum, vacuum team mainframe went out a style. They went to the solid state, and I got too big, and they couldn't hold me by my feet. So I realized early on, I think by the age of 13 years old, that tech will replace me in a moment's notice. So anyways, I, I went to go work for uh, technology companies. I worked for digital equipment. I ran a computer business. So just a lot of odd jobs um, in the early days and got involved in technology. So it was just really it was an interesting thing to be able to do while I was going to school. And, uh, and then when I graduated from high school, I started working more and more in tech. And you have served at the White House. That's really cool. I'm yeah, sure that, listeners want to hear about that. Tell us about that. So it's an interesting thing. So I, I, I was doing public speaking in the 90s, and, and I was sitting at a conference. Um, and uh, it was a conference about security and um, border controls and stuff like that. And I was speaking about Internet security and computer security. Um, and Pre uh, Vice President Al Gore was there talking about um, security of the, the United States. And so we were in the ready room talking um, beforehand. And he said, what do you know about Y2K? And I explained to him what I knew about Y2K. This was the mid-90s. And uh, he said, would you like to be an advisor to the White House? And I said, sure. And then, uh, you know, without even thinking what that meant, but it meant that I was now basically flying to Washington, D.C., um, going through and meeting with uh, the advisors on Y2K for the United States. So it was, a, it was a great opportunity, but I had to commute every week to Washington for five years. It was pretty brutal. 
From California? From California. Oh my goodness. So, or move, but you know, it's like. Yeah. How was that? Uh, how was that background check? Uh, yeah, yeah, cleared. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! Uh, we, we that's that's fascinating. And then you did Y two K, and then uh, also cybersecurity, just in general. I did. So you know, the interesting transition from that. So I did Y two K, and and the big thing with Y two K was around the clocks were changing and we had to patch and update systems. And anybody who was around in the late 90s remember that the way that we fixed the patch was we actually walked computer to computer with floppy disks and we applied updates. Um, and it, because most computers in the late 90s weren't internet connected yet. And so you didn't have the ability to download stuff. And it was toward the end, around 1998, 1999, that all of a sudden people were connecting to the internet, email started to flow, and we started to do patching and updates over the internet. I wrote a book and I basically said that at that time that we got a problem is that while we hastily quickly implemented this connectivity of the internet and we're able to patch and update systems that now you have the ability of somebody um, to come in and hack your system. Uh, and I wrote a book about it. I said that there's, there's a uh, potential for cyber crimes and cyber uh, terrorism to happen. And, and my writings were actually panned at the time. People were saying that could never happen. You know, a, a country like Russia could never, you know, come in and hack the United States and, and get access to systems. Um, but that was going on, and, and I was speaking about uh, cybersecurity and cyber terrorism. Um, and I became an advisor to the Bush administration, specifically around cybersecurity and cyber terrorism, um, and spent five years going through and talking about what the threat was and what we could do to actually prevent it. And, you know, you know, in hindsight here now, you look back and it's like, you know, it's in the front page of everything. You know, Russian hackers and, you know, security hacks and all these major corporations um, being uh, threats of attacks. Uh, and there are things that should have been done, could have been done 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, since our, our last show, the, the Equifax news has <clears throat> been uh, amplified somewhat. Uh, what are you, what are you, you would think that a company like Equifax would be absolutely adamant and prioritize security above all else. But hey, stuff happens, I guess. Uh, you know, they didn't know about it for a while. You know, what, what lessons can we learn from the Equifax hack? Well, I think that that goes back to even the early days of, of terrorism and, and um, any type of espionage is that anybody who wants to get access to the information could get access to it. And so when you have a load of data like an Equifax or it might be a Sony, might be a Target stores, um, it could be any of the banks is that you are a target and you can't sit there and say, I've done everything I can to protect it. Um, and so security is one of those areas that people don't spend enough attention to it. Uh, it's the arrogance that I know how to protect myself. I set up these firewalls, but it really gets to the point of it's very simple um, to get access to, to secured systems. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that too many IT people put the credentials in their hands, is that you don't have to break your way into the firewall. All you have to do is get the credentials of the, the security administrator. Because the security administrator is, I call them lazy in the sense that we want to sit at home, we want to remote into a system, we want to be able to con you know, fix things. Whereas if you really look at the, the control of most really strong security systems, you block everything out. If you do any administration or management, you're actually inside the four walls of the facility. And if you limit the security only to what you need to have access, when you need to have access to it within a closed room, is that you will not have as many threats uh, of access. But we make it too simple for people to get access anywhere in the world. Yeah, I was I was reading another article this week about uh, some nuclear facilities 
that were maybe hacked or not hacked. I there was like very vague information. They wouldn't. I think they finally released a couple of the locations, but they said, you know, it was just to an admin network or you know, yeah. uh, not. It wasn't the the nuclear network, <laughs> but still, I mean. I would imagine that there has to be information somewhere in there that would be compromising. It's terrifying. Well, it is, and 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 it might not necessarily be the you know nuclear pieces, but it, it really is. If I get into one piece and I can find information and then hop into the next, that's the part where it's you may not be able to go straight into it. But if I can get to one piece and move my way in, and again, if we set that blockage to say that you can only get access to information from a terminal within a closed environment, you can minimize that potential for risk. Well, so you're we talking just make about it too easy. Like physical security, air gapped labs, that kind of Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, and when you think of Fort Knox and the gold, it's just like we don't have like a little to go window where you can kind of reach in and grab some gold out of Fort Knox <laughs> and pull it out, right? I mean, you know, when you think about Fort Knox or or you know any of these big vaults, is the only way to get to it is within the vault. And within the vault is another vault and another vault. And you know, if we don't make it easy to get access to the gold, we shouldn't make it easy to get access to our network. Um, so, and the more the easier we make it, it just becomes a threat. So if I if I take what you just said and I apply it to the context of cloud computing, like mm -hmm. I get, you know, what, what does that mean for for the future of cloud? Like, is some people would say that you know cloud is absolutely secure. Some people would say, eh, probably not for everything. Like, where do you stand on cloud and security? So same thing with with cloud is is that um, from access and when you when you set controls up for the cloud, I can administer that cloud from anywhere from my mobile phone, whatever I want, or I can specify that I should only administer that cloud from a sp specific IP address or location. And so that there's only one way in and one way out, maybe two for fault tolerance, but I shouldn't be able to administer and manage it from anywhere. I shouldn't have the ability for one person to access the cloud resources solely. You can have staged levels. So when you think of many of the, the defense uh, systems that are out there, it takes two keys to open up a door. It takes two keys or three keys to be able to get through secured airlocks. Is that if you're really looking at the administrative controls, is that we need to be able to go to stacked level, secured access control to systems. Are we looking at a day when people's hands are going to get chopped off or they're going to steal your eyeballs to have a retina scan or a, a biometric scan? Like, is that going to happen like it does in the movies? <laughs> well, you know, the, the movies actually portray a lot of those things and, and it's a possibility, but it, it, the, the security doesn't have to be that fancy. It has to be controlled. So even when you go in to provide security access into some of these secured facilities is that you're not necessarily using fingerprints or what have you. It's that familiarity. The guard knows who you are. The guard um, has the ability of looking at your credentials. So it's not just um, somebody who with fancy fingerprints. It's that acknowledgement that I know who yeah. you are. Interesting. It's probably good I have an identical twin in that case. That might actually be a way to do it, isn't it? Never thought of that one for, uh, for security. Yeah. Oh, man. We do have way different fingerprints, though. We, we checked. <laughs> uh, so you got a degree because of cybersecurity and what would seem like is a totally unrelated field. But tell us about your PhD. So, yeah. So, first of all, to get the, the reason that I did a, a PhD is, is when I was working for the government and you get introduced around the room and here I'm the security expert, right? But you're, you're walking around the room, it's vice president this, president that, secretary this, senator that, congressman that, and then Mr. Morimoto. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, 
ooh, I just got, I'm just a mister. I'm not a senator, I'm a congressman. So I figured, you know, it would be kind of cool to be like professor or doctor or something. And so I pursued what it would take to actually get a, a PhD. And uh, it was a lot of school. It was a lot of studying. It was writing a thesis. But at the end, it became Dr. Morimoto. But the topic that I wanted to be able to cover was not just I want to get a PhD for the title. It's also can I apply this to the work that I was doing? And what I did it is uh, on is motivational system theories. Um, what makes people do the things that they do? And part of this whole security is usually in security we create firewalls and we look at that blockage of how do you prevent somebody from accessing it? And then the security people jump in afterwards once there's been a breach. Um, or we create these firewalls thinking that that becomes the panacea for security. The way that we think of it is, is what we call the psychology of, of cyberspace. The ability of thinking about what the criminals are doing. If they're currently doing X and Y, the next thing that they're going to do is Z. And you think about that motivation of what are they trying to get access to? The money, the gold, the credentials, they're accessing something. So if you go back to thinking about from a psychology standpoint, what are they looking to get access to? What have they done leading up to this point? And now I can set a trap or I can go through and make sure I watch them. So rather than having them watch us and look at our passwords and get access to us, let's watch them. And if you can monitor what the bad guy is doing, you know where they're going, you know what they're going after, then security is actually monitoring the bad guys, not trying to block some big thing that might happen that you don't know what it is. So, wow. So being more proactive versus reactive. It's proactive knowing, proactively knowing who the bad guy is. Wow. As opposed to let's create this big tall wall in the hope that I can block somebody out, which all you're doing is you're building a tall wall and there's going to be a taller ladder to get over the taller wall. So you can make a really short wall if the bad guy's really short. Um, <laughs> I live in Texas. We hear a lot about walls. So. Uh, okay. Oh, a lot about walls. So you, you are also a guest lecturer uh, at a few places. What kind of topics are you lecturing about or speaking about these days? Wide range of things. So uh, I do things, everything from you know, technology stuff. So I'll talk about you know, security and cybersecurity. It's a popular topic. Um, I talk about uh, entrepreneurship, starting businesses and, and how to run businesses. I do motivational um, discussions. Um, I've run a, I have run a business now for over 30 years. So what's it take to run a business? How do you motivate people? How do you get the business to be successful? Um, I cover other topics around legal aspects of uh, computer policies, security policies, which is a big thing these days. It's not just keeping content, securing content, but how do you set a policy that identifies what you want to protect? And there's some big changes in that whole security piece where in the past we used to secure everything. And nowadays what we're advising people is just secure the five or 10% of the stuff that really matters. The other 90%, if it gets stolen, it gets lost, it shouldn't matter. So it's classification. So I do a lot of different things from technology through business. I can imagine that companies would be highly interested in this. As of late, especially. There is. There's just a lot of different ways of thinking things. If, if you're doing security, if you're doing IT the way you did 10 years ago, you're behind the times, just as you mentioned, cloud computing. Is that cloud has completely changed the way IT does stuff. But if all we're doing is the same old IT, but in the cloud, then we have only moved our systems from an on-premise to the cloud. We have to think of cloud as... Uh, software as a service and platform as a service and a new way of doing things leveraging the elasticity of the cloud then merely let me lift and shift stuff so there's so a lot you, of changes are, are you, I know you've written a, a number of books on on Azure and Microsoft technologies 
Where, where, what is your sentiment of, of Azure and where it stands today? I, I, I'm impressed. I didn't think it would take off as quickly or as widely as it has. <laughs> you know, it's, and so Microsoft's had their Azure now for, you know, probably, what, eight, nine years. Uh, we've been involved from the very early on, and uh, it has taken off. And, and, and the reason that it's taken off is a lot of organizations over the last three to five years have switched over from Microsoft's email system on-prem, Microsoft Exchange, to their Office 365. Um, and that, you know, from zero to 60, that thing really took off. You know, just five years ago, everybody was email in their Exchange servers on-prem. And then all of a sudden, you know, few people started migrate. And then next thing you know, it's like everybody's on Office 365. Um, predominantly because it's just easy. I yeah. don't have servers to back up. I don't have to maintain them. I don't have this thing to fix. I don't have to buy hardware and storage systems and all that stuff. I just pay Microsoft a monthly fee, and they take care of it. And they've been very good at reliability and security and all that other stuff. So then what, where Azure's taking off is where um, Office 365 left off. All these people did their mail migration, and they've had a great experience. Now they're going back to Microsoft to say, what's next? Um, and Microsoft is saying, move your web servers, your database servers, your application servers. Um, and they provide them the same security and reliability, single sign-on, all that stuff. So they, they've made some huge movements. They're smart. They've made some, some great investments. Um, they've secured the heck out of it. They've made it reliable. Um, they've gained the trust of customers. And that's in, you know, really only talking, what, three, four years? Yeah, I was I was uh, setting my son's, uh, it's like a Minecraft account or something. I was setting <laughs> it up. And I was really impressed by the level of verification that you had to go through to set up an account. Yeah. Like I thought, wow, this is actually really good because this is going to reduce the chances that there are some, you know, there would be fewer nefarious people with, you know, fake information playing Minecraft, which, you know, for my son is probably good since he's only seven. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's fascinating to me to see just kind of how not only Microsoft technologies have evolved, but really their brand too. Yeah. Like it seems like they've, they've uh, we had Per Wagner, it's like an international association of Microsoft certified professionals. Uh, oh, yeah. Per, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know Per. That's oh, right. yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, so we had Per on, and, uh, you know, he was telling us about just the, the massive effort, the change that was required to get to this place where uh, Microsoft can execute on this cloud vision, and it's just—it's fascinating to me. It is, and and you know, organizations are looking at a better way of doing things. Is that IT is really a, a service? It's a—it's a. There's no reason for every company on the earth to set up their and manage their own email systems and database systems and accounting systems when you could buy it as a service and just like we buy electricity as a service and gasoline is we don't filter and manufacture our own gas we buy it these are things that same thing technology email services database services are really things that we should be buying not building and manufacturing ourselves and it should be easy is, is what I'm realizing too it seems like you know the, the technologies that are taking off right now seem to be the ones that facilitate ease of use it is it's, it's the commodity functions I mean that's why email went so quickly is, is email you know you asked five years ago email would have been like the most important thing for a company it's you know it's our lifeline of communications we will never give it up we're always going to manage it and it was the first thing that people moved because it was highly important but internal IT had a challenge maintaining it because it was very expensive to keep email reliable. You had to have multiple data centers if one failed. Um, you had database corruption, data storage growth. I mean, you had all these challenges that really made it expensive to maintain and manage. And if somebody else like Microsoft is willing to do it for a few bucks a month, why not? And they've been able to prove that they can do it reliably, securely, and people have gone that path.
So the clients that you're working with, you uh, you had made a comment that you're seeing about 50% have embraced cloud and the other 50% are still wait and see. Is that is that still accurate? I'd probably say that it depends on the on the technology. So for email, um, right now it's probably a good, it's a done deal. I mean, there's only a handful of organizations that haven't moved their email to the cloud. Um, right now for the rest of the stuff, um, it's 50-50. I mean, organizations are, you know, some are fully moving forward, moving all the rest of their stuff, accounting systems and database systems and stuff to the cloud. Half of them are still kind of settling in. Um, after their migration to Office 365, but it's going to be moving quickly, just like we saw email move quickly, you know, in a matter of two, three years, is that people are jumping on board. It's really a matter, they have to step back and assess how do we manage it, how do we maintain it? It's that cultural change, and I wrote a book on that. It's, it's called Adapting to the New World of IT, and it was really stepping back to say, you plan to migrate to, to the cloud, but then now that you've migrated, what does IT do? You know, we're no longer setting up servers, patching systems, maintaining it. What is that new world of IT? And, and the way that I've you know, proposed it into the book and, and the way it's come out over the last year, year and a half since I wrote the book, um, is we are taking having all of those mundane tasks handled by the cloud. And now IT is doing things that are smarter for the business. They're doing security stuff. They're making sure that the organization is more compliant because we haven't had time to secure networks when we are rushing around, trying to swap out failed hard drives and network cables problems and internet uh, problems. And so now that that is off of our backs, now IT can focus on the front end of things, security, compliance, data analytics, be able to do things that help the business be more successful. So not just a cost center, but really trying. I think uh, one of our, our guests recently, it was, this, it was our Cisco IT guys that were on, and, and he said, man, we got, IT got caught with its pants down. It was bad. Like, it was bad. Like, we were just, you know, we were a cost center. We weren't really adding a ton of value. We were keeping the lights on. Yep. And and they're at a point now where they're starting to add, you know, value to the business by looking at new technologies and, you know, looking at data retention strategies and, you know, trying to offload those where they can, you know. Um, and I, I think that's great. I think it's, uh, it's about time. Uh, as far as IT goes, is that primarily who you deal with, is IT departments? So it's a, it's a shift, and, and kind of as you identified is that whole IT has been the overhead and cost center of it, but the business is, is the part where a lot of the stuff that we're doing these days are, are moving toward. Um, and you know, when you talk about this 50-50, 50% of the, the people see, I have to make a change. Um, and half the people are kind of saying, I'm not ready to make the change. And, and where I usually tell organizations is jump on board to the change, because you have two options. You can be part of the change, and be leading it forward, or you could be the victim of it. You could basically be sitting here two years or three years down the line, the CIO, the CFO comes in and says, what are you doing? And the response is, well, I'm keeping the lights on. <laughs> but you know, if somebody descends in there and, and now completely cloudifies the environment, then it really comes down to the point of, okay, well, you've been here sitting in that seat for five years or 10 years. You've done nothing to move us forward. Get out of here. Let me bring in the people that are the visionaries that are moving us forward. So we are suggesting to people move forward, get the technologies in there. And that's shifting to the line of business because now, since I'm no longer looking at blinking lights, I can now go out to the salespeople, the retail storefront, the manufacturing storefront, and figure out how are things being done and what can IT do to increase sales, decrease costs, increase efficiency of the product the business sells. 
And that's the front line. And that changes. I mean, we've had many of our customers where we've dropped costs from seven million down to three million, where we found opportunities for them to hit new markets um, by using cloud, where they can open up centers in Australia and Europe, um, where they can spin them up in minutes as opposed to let's build a data center, let's seed it with equipment, we'll start putting people in there a year from now, is that you can now bring people into different countries, different parts of the world um, in, in a matter of just putting them on an airplane with a laptop. So that's how organizations can grow their footprint, grow their business and, and increase their opportunities. So what advice would you have to, to, to those companies out there who have not yet embraced that change? Like, what do they need to do to get with it? How do they get their employees up to speed to be able to take advantage of this technology? I mean, other than hiring conversion. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there, there really are three different angles to this. I mean, one is some organizations just have technology um, land on them. And, and it is where a new executive comes in and basically drops it in and says, you're out the door. Let's bring in a new management team. So that's kind of the forced method. Another method is organically growing it. And, and that's the speed of how quickly an organization can learn it. Um, and then the, the third kind of in-between way is where we come into place where we work with existing IT and we help them accelerate that learn. Um, we show them how it's done. We implement the technologies. We make the stuff work um, because things or organizations that organically learn it, they can't learn it fast enough. It is changing so quickly that even if somebody sat down with a book or the website, they start playing with it in their free time, they can't learn it fast enough to get from zero to 60. And so they really need a, a, a quick start and, and a jump to it. And companies like ours, you know, consulting firms, service providers can jump in and help those people move in quickly. Um, and then they can get up to speed. It's a whole lot better than somebody coming in, dropping in a whole new IT department and saying, you're the old team, get out. We have a new team that's here. So yeah, we I mean, move fast. Uh, totally. I can see the number one reason I think holding people back is, is the technical debt. It's just the level of effort and the existing systems and the dependencies on those existing systems is so great that you just can't, you're not going to be able to flip a light switch and just start using cloud. And it is. And, and I think that people have realized that with Office 365 is, is that once they kind of take that burden off of them, then they're not, they, they really do have some free time. Um, to not be running after data systems and servers and stuff. And now they can learn something. But the, the key and the thing I always hit people on the head is don't take that leeway of time as an opportunity to be able to now just slack off. It really is the point of now that you have a little bit of free time, start learning the new stuff. Because now you have the time to learn something and then move the company forward. Otherwise, you know, you just have a lot of free time and, and a year from now, two years from now, you're obsolete. Where do you get your news? Where do you, how do you stay up to date on all the, the trends? So the way that we get it is the hard way. We, we actually play with the technologies. And, and that's the challenge I put out to all my consultants um, is that we get access to the technologies you know, before they're released in beta cycles. Uh, we work very closely with Microsoft and uh, Amazon and Google and all the players that are out there to be able to get on early adopter programs. Um, and we fiddle with the technology. So that way, when they, the technologies become available, we've already worked with it for three months, six months, a year. Nice. Um, it, it, but it is a challenge because it's a matter of, okay, I work my 40-hour week, but then I also have to spend a few hours learning something new. But I tell all my consultants, you spend two or three hours a week, you know, that's 100, 200 hours a, a year. And that 100 or 200 hours is like you just took three, four weeks off and did nothing but learn. So two hours a week is just valuable, just moving a little bit ahead. And especially if, you have, if you're a year ahead of stuff, you know, you're, you're now just learning a little bit a year in advance. And when it comes out, people think you're a genius, but 
you just had a chance to play a little bit of it at a time. Brilliant. That's really sound advice. Really, really sound advice. Uh, one last question. I mean, you, uh, you're lecturing and you're obviously you're coming across the millennial generation and you know, I don't know that the millennial generation, uh, the millennials, I don't think they deserve the slack that they're getting <laughs> and I feel a little bit bad for them. But what it, what are you seeing the millennials doing to larger, older, more established companies? It seems like people are somewhat threatened by them and they think they're entitled. But at the same time, it sounds like the millennials probably have some really good ideas and they have a different view on technology in terms of it being intuitive and simple and having a good user experience. Yeah. Well, that's a fun part. Yeah, that's where, again, I use that that doctoral studies around motivational systems theories is, is that – I have, I, I have the psycholo psychology background where I can actually see the differences between, you know, the older generations, the new generations, everybody in between. And everybody has their bright spots and their dark spots. Um, and um, the millennials look at the old people basically saying, okay, they're stuck in their ways. And the old people say the new people are, are, are coming in with certain expectations. Everybody has some great ideas. And, and the great thing is, is that the millennials that are coming into the marketplace, they do have some great ideas. They were born with technology in their hands. Um, they don't know how to do it the old way. And so they have very creative ways of doing things. And it's a matter of taking the millennials um, and the older generations, the more senior people in IT, bring them together. So that way we can take the energy and thoughts and ideas along with the maturity, how to structure processes and build that into businesses. So we find for organizations, they are not good with just one or another, but they're better if they bring them together. And it's actually has worked out very well, melding it and moving businesses forward. That's awesome. I, I look forward to hearing more about that at some time. We are, <laughs> we, look, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to give you a chance to, you know, you, you seem pretty up to date on things. What are some of the exciting things, uh, you know, either that you're working on or things that are, you think are, are revolutionary in terms of just tech in general? Well, so th there's a lot of technologies that exist out there, and, and today it seems like you know not just the servers and implementation stuff. Security is a big thing, and, and so that's a big part of what we're doing today. A lot of it is around content classification. It's not just let's secure everything, but it's looking at that two or three or four percent of the stuff that's important, classify it as important, and secure and manage that piece instead of everything that's out there. Um, so content classification is a big thing, and and be able to address things like the EU GDPR which is a lot about data classification and management. That's a big area. The other thing that we find is policies. Uh, a lot of legal policies and, and, and IT policies. We go into organizations that either don't have IT policies or their policies are five or 10 or 20 years old. Oof. And when you look at what is new today in the cloud, there's a lot of things around the policies and, and technology to that part. Um, and then a lot of the cloud stuff. I and mean, one of the things that we've been playing with a lot is Microsoft's Azure Stack. Um, and you know, Cisco has jumped on as, as a partner with Microsoft to be able to build out these on-premise Azure clouds. And as much as we've been talking about cloud and you know, we talk about the public cloud, is that there's a lot of organizations, banks, healthcare organizations, that they can't put all of the stuff up in a public cloud environment. Um, it's very expensive or hard for them to do it, and so they want to do it on-prem. And what Microsoft released earlier this year is Azure Stack is the ability for an organization to actually take a, an Azure server um, and put it on-prem into an organization's data center. So we find a lot of these hybrid technologies that exist out there that not everything will move to the cloud, but there's going to be this balance of having some stuff that can move to the cloud, move it to the cloud, some stuff on-prem that will uh, provide that 
infrastructure that organizations need in a hybrid. So it's a fun time. I mean, it's, it, out of all the years that I've been in IT, this is one of the best times out there because there's just so many different things that are new. A lot of things that the old stuff kind of falls into place. And then when you meld these things together, they actually work out really well. Awesome. Good time to be alive. Good time to be awesome. working on cloud and security and all the rest. Where uh, where can we find you? You have a Twitter account. Uh, where, where can people get a hold of you? Where can they find your books or your, your articles? Yep. So off of my company website, so uh, www.cco.com, it stands for Convergent Computing, cco.com. Um, I list off the books that we have. You can actually download our, our books for free uh, if you go into our publications. Um, and while well, you can buy them on Amazon, we make them available as free PDF downloads. I also have my Twitter information up there. I blog uh, every month um, out on Network World. Uh, and different topics around whether it's security or networking or Azure Stack and things of that type. So we try to throw out as much information as possible. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for joining us. We know you're busy, and uh, I love I love the background you have going on behind your uh, desk. It is it. To, to obscure all the stuff that whatever. Uh, yeah, you. the, the mess is, is kind of like <laughs> hide the stuff behind the curtain. Yeah, it's great. I'm going to have to adopt that strategy. Well, thank you so much, Rand. Everybody say bye. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.